Hello, everyone. Uh, as you can probably hear from the what is undoubtedly terrible audio quality, I, Weston Williams, am not on this show because I am off getting married. But I still have opinions about what happened in Opera Land this week, so if you would... Weston, what are you doing? The ceremony is starting! Sorry, sorry. Talk to you guys next week. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera it's opera box score i'm oliver camacho joined this week by george cedarquist who is on assignment matt cummings and ashley hartgrave all right in this episode we go inside the huddle with soprano whitney morrison the chicago native created the role of yasmin miller in daniel bernard Rumain and anna devere smith's the walkers at lyric opera of chicago where she was recently named as the company's inaugural artist in residence and then a field report, not from our friend PJ, but from our very own George Cedarquist, who is in the middle of attending the Opera America Conference in Pittsburgh, not Philadelphia. We'll see if he can find out the consensus from his peers of how many operas Handel wrote. Plus, in the two-minute drill, breaking news, Met Orchestra, not bored. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. Click follow on Apple Podcasts. Hit the plus, the plus. The plus sign? The plus sign. There it is. And if you'd like your hot takes heard on Opera Box Score, you can send us an email at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You could even send us a voice memo, as some people do. Just record it on your device and send it to us as an MP3 or a wave or however you want to send it by Carrier Pigeon. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pen just for sharing your hot take. Ashley, what is going on with the uh, NBA and the WNBA? WNBA yes. the, the L, the, the LNBA NBA for women. Is you there know, a name for that one? The lady NBA. Uh, yeah, no, they're so they're all just starting their seasons. And there was a really emotional home opener not long ago where Brittany Griner took the court in the home opener for the Phoenix Mercury against the Chicago Sky. Uh, mm-hmm. Vice President Kamala Harris was there speaking to both teams. Uh, Brittany definitely got emotional as she came out onto the court when she was announced. It was a it was a very, very emotional thing. And it was a really nice moment for women's basketball to sort of be back in the news to remind people that they're uh, they're season just started did something and happen with Brittany Griner <laughs> really what happened unfortunately the Chicago Sky did beat the Mercury in that home opener but still it was a, it was an emotional day nonetheless Matt uh do you have any sport that you would like to report upon in this moment here I I could not have fewer sports to report upon <laughs> I'm I'm just here on succession watch which is a sport in and of itself these days Yes, it is. Actually, I wish we could like take time to talk about what TV we're watching. But, uh, you know, in between episodes of Succession, I'm uh, getting season three of Indian matchmaking in. That absolutely sounds like some bonus content that we need to put together (laughs) where we all bring like a television show to recommend. Keeping track of who has the best zingers about how awful everyone is. Yeah. Um, Anybody watching Jury Duty with James Marsden? 
It's so good. I'm not nearly caught up, but it is, it is delightful. I've been, I've been putting my time into Ted Lasso and somebody mm-hmm. somewhere, but as soon as those are finished, I'm going to jury duty. Yeah. On okay. top of succession, I've been uh, putting in the work to get caught up on yellow jackets, hopefully in time for the Ooh. season finale this week. That's sports. That counts as sports. Yes. There's it, a sporty element there. Yes. Okay. All right. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Just last week, it was in the two-minute drill, Whitney Morrison was named Lyric Opera of Chicago's inaugural artist-in-residence. This follows a season where she created the role of Yasmin Miller in Proximity. Uh, the role of Yasmin Miller comes in Anna DeBeer Smith and DBR's The Walkers. And she had a very emotional scene, which sort of was the point of this opera. She was hailed as really the heart of that particular part of proximity. She's also sung the role of Sister Rose uh, in Dead Man Walking, and all of this comes after her years as a young artist with the Ryan Opera Center. I first met Brit- Brittany. I first met Whitney uh, when she sang Donna Anna in Floating Opera Company's Don Giovanni, and we'll talk about that. But first, let's enjoy a bit of Whitney Morrison singing Kling. <laughs> voice of soprano Whitney Morrison, our guest today on Opera Box Score. Welcome to Opera Box Score. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so honored. So we've sort of known each other since 2016. I used to write a blog back then called Vocal Arts Chicago. And I remember going to your performance at a storefront opera company called Floating Opera Company, which I don't know if it exists anymore. I don't think it does. But um, it was Don Giovanni in a cemetery. <laughs> it's one of those like, uh, you know, site-specific performances. And um, you were singing Donna Anna. And it was one of those experiences where I felt like, okay, there is a reason why Storefront Opera exists. It's so that people like you can get just your feet wet and get some role experience and maybe give an audience like a blazing performance of a notoriously <laughs> difficult role. Uh, people bust their voices singing that first aria. But I just remember, I st- remember it like it was yesterday, that you were so committed and so dramatic. And you're the type of singer 
who just puts your whole body into your performance. Like you are like a beast on stage. And I was like, who is this? Who is this person I've heard before singing this really, really hard music and just being like savage on stage? Do you, do you remember that being that way that you were just like, I'm just going to do it. Like here I am in this weird mausoleum or whatever. I'm just going to go for it. It was a crematorium. Crematorium. And my family says you get one of those. We're not doing anything else. If you go back, we're not coming. <laughs> Well, Dona Anna, not an easy thing. And I just knew that that was going to be, uh, that you were going to have a career. I was like, okay, this girl is not going to be, she's not long for a storefront opera. And uh, you proved me right. <laughs> and before before long, you were um, welcomed into Lyric Opera of Chicago's Ryan Opera Center. And within two years, you were singing on the stage of Pritzker Pavilion, sort of a difference between a crematorium and the biggest stage for classical music in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, funny thing about your Pritzker Pavilion debut was, um, well, you, maybe you sang in one of those Rising Stars concerts or something, uh, like Night Out in the Park concerts, but the... Um, concert I remember was your Miss Pinkerton in um, The Old Lady and the Thief, the Minotti opera. And this to me began what I think of as your uh, kind of your haughty roles. I think like you have this character that you do um, that you did in Miss as Miss Pinkerton in um, Old Lady and the Thief, Old Maid and the Thief, which you sort of reprise just in a much more um, in a bigger way when you were singing Lady Billows recently uh, for Chicago Opera Theater under Jane, under Dame Jane Glover. There's this thing that you just have, I don't know, you can be this, I guess, church lady is <laughs> the best way to describe her. <laughs> Where does that come from? Yeah, it's being a crazy church lady for sure, um, which both of them are. And so mm. it's very fitting. Um, I'm actually a really silly, fun-loving person in real life. Like, most of the people that like know me just personally without singing, they know I just am silly and cracking jokes and, you know, I'm a situational comic, really. And so it's a chance to just kind of act nuts on stage, which is, you know, very much in my wheelhouse. It's just the kind of voice that I have, you know, it, it lends itself to more dramatic and sad repertoire, which I can do. Mm -hmm. um, but the funny... Uh, crazy church ladies are are definitely uh, something I enjoy. Well, we touched upon this role that you created of Yasmin Miller in Daniel Bernard Romain's, um, the it's called The Walkers, which is a yes. part of the triptych known as Proximity. Um, I don't know if it The Walkers is going to, you know, become its own show, a standalone show, or if it will always be part of Proximity. But uh, you, I think for many people, were the heart of this world premiere and you have the most emotional scene which really brings the opera to a conclusion this role of the mother Yasmin Miller a true story who lost her child to gun violence and uh, this was this was tough for everybody to listen to and uh, I felt like DBR if I can call him that he exploited this part of your voice which you're very comfortable with like this lower middle part of your voice, like this kind of speaky range, you know, 
so that everybody could understand what you were saying, uh, so that the text was very clear, but also in a part of your voice that has like a natural um, cry in it, you know, like you have this, just this, just this part of your voice where it's like, you're, it's very easy for you to bring out that what it almost sounds like when you're on the verge of tears. I don't know if you if that was difficult for you technically to do that, or if that if you just worked with DBR to find where that would be in your voice. <laughs> I mean, what happened was I got the role as it was. And in my mind, it was in the weakest part of my voice where I had no choice but to speak only. <laughs> you know, that was the technique. Was to say it. I'm not sh I'm not ashamed of the fact, and I will tell anybody, I said, all the rest of y'all got to sing. I didn't get to do no singing. I had to just say the thing outright. So it almost felt like a spoken role almost, or, you know, like stretched in it. I mean, it mm -hmm. was mostly just recitative the whole time. Mm -hmm. Like it was, that was the approach. And so um, it created a great opportunity for communication though. So, you know, coming to a role as a soprano, you know, and it's never been performed in public before, you know, it it was suggested to me, hey, are you gonna ask him to raise it? And I considered that, but I never brought it up because the truth was in the color that could come from something that was more like speech than like singing. And so it served the text and so I bit the bullet and did what I had to do. <laughs> and it was also mic'd, and so I didn't have to worry about the sound traveling as much as I would have otherwise. And so it was a choice, you know, people could feel how they want about it, but that's a choice that I made. And I feel satisfied because I felt like what I did was worthwhile and that um, I really told the story in a way that was compelling and that really honored the woman that was coming to see her story on stage you know it's not like you know some amalgamation of people from a whole different time period and a different place or whatever she had from up the street and you got to get it right did you meet Yasmin Miller I did I did after <sighs> opening and she's just a bundle of joy I don't understand um given her life situation and circumstances how she just shows up that way. But it was so powerful um, to see, even in that circumstance, her just kind of still lit up. You know, you can't you can't fake light like that. And so it was profound to see her for even that small, that short of a time. Hmm. Well, you have this relationship now with Lyric Opera Chicago. It was just announced, like, last week that you are the inaugural... Uh, artist in residence, uh, and it it makes me very happy that you are the person who they've uh, named as this first artist in residence because of your relationship to Chicago, and you know all the performances you've given uh, as a young artist, and then as uh, you know professional stage debut as uh, Sister Rose, and then uh, recently as Yasmin Miller, and I know that there's more coming up, but um, can you tell us about what your ideas? are and like how you are personalizing this experience or this opportunity? 
Well, I can tell you about what's been announced already and what we've started. I'm not exactly sure about the rest of it. I guess we'll just have to um, wait and see. I actually should talk to them about, you know, what I should be saying, but you know, we're here now. <laughs> so I could tell you about the overall theme, which is um, natural audacity. With, so it's kind of a play on words. Most of what we're working on in this residence residency has to do with the natural world. The first thing um, out the gate is the uh, interdisciplinary performance artwork, uh, our installation called the uh, called Growing Room, and it is a greenhouse, um, but it's turned into <laughs> a practice room, and. I go inside and, you know, there's a piano and there's a mirror and plants and I go in and practice and people can come up and, you know, look into the room and listen to what it is that I'm doing, but I am not engaging with the onlookers. And so that is a kind of metaphor for the need for places and spaces for young and developing artists to be as they're growing and then um, room around them so that they can expand into maturity. Uh, and so it is a kind of interesting experience for me because it challenges my focus and just mental state in general. It's, it's a bit of an experiment and, uh, and I don't know, an adventure kind of in my own backyard. And um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. So the rest of it has this kind of, or they have um, this kind of element of nature, but also the nature element is about being a human being. And so there's a lot of intersectionality and identity woven into the residency. And so there's like nature outside, but then it's nature versus nurture in us. And what, who are we, you know, at our most elemental and how do we um, nourish ourselves in order to become the fullest and most mature and most realized version of ourselves. And so from the city of broad shoulders, I have a sense of nerve uh, <laughs> just uh, innately. And so uh, I have a natural audacity uh, in myself, but just like, a, you know, grass coming up through the cracks of the sidewalk, you know, nature has an audacity to thrive and to be and to show up and be beautiful wherever. So remind me again, what is the name of the ex exhibit? Oh, it's called Growing Room. Growing Room. Okay. So is it Whitney Morrison's Growing Room or Lyric Opera Chicago's Growing Room or just Growing Room? It's Growing Room. Okay. <laughs> Like like room to grow. Yes. So it's it's a kind of double entendre. There is growing room like a grow room for plants that supports growth. But then there's growing room like, you know, when your parents buy your clothes too big. So you have room to grow into them. No. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and young artists need all of that. What type of uh, things are you working on in the practice? Are you, are you actually working on stuff that you're engaged to sing or... Are you doing just vocalizes, vocalizes so people can hear what it takes for a, a singer to get their voice in shape and to, you know, uh, refine the technique? All of the above. So I am approaching this 
as an extension of my practice. So the same practice I would do here at my piano in my house, you know, my goal as the artist and the practitioner is to take as much of that into that room and just continue. Like it's just my practice session, but it just happens to be in public, you know, airing, airing my dirty laundry. <laughs> <laughs> so have you already done this? Has, has, has this happened yet or has the first one yeah, it has. Okay, so you're not. Yeah, so, yeah, it premiered yesterday at the Stony Island Arts Bank in the courtyard there. So all of these happen outdoors. And so it is just, it's a spectacle. I, re I remember yesterday just pulling up to the place and I'm like, oh my goodness, the the, the greenhouse is pretty tall and is replete with plants. And it, I mean, it's just, it is something to behold. And what I hear is that it is one thing to interact with the installation, but then it's also another thing to watch people interact with it. So after you've had your initial kind of take on it and curiosity about it, you know, people just pulled up blankets and watched other people just come up to it and inch up and stay far <laughs> back. And it's been like a whole thing. It's like a social experiment because it's incidental. Uh, whereas performance usually is, you know, you show up and you're prepared to go and da, da 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 da. So what happens when you remove all the rules about something that's supposed to be a performance? You get a lot of really interesting outcomes. Do you ever feel? Uh, you, I know you haven't done it yet, but do you feel like you're going to want to perform? Like if you have a big enough audience, like oh, I, have, I better sing a song in here while, I, while I'm here and all these people are watching. I am tempted, right? But I have a few um, very clear intentions, which are to focus and to commit to actually practicing in an effective way. And so that does not include performance like it would be, you know, in a hall. And so, yes, there is a temptation, but that is part of the practice for me is to stay in practice mode and be committed to process. That's the most important um, theme in this whole uh, installation is highlighting process because people like a finished product and that's nice, but people tend to undervalue an outcome when they don't understand what the process is. You know, a lot of us don't know where our food comes from. A lot of us don't know, you know, how anything is made. You know, there's a show how it's made because we don't know, mm -hmm. right? But once you understand the process, at least in some small way of what it is that you're consuming, you really start to appreciate it much more. And it is my hope that in elucidating the process of, um, art making, music making, classical music making, people gain an appreciation for it, but also that they gain an appreciation for just process in general. Um, because I think that's where the best things are made when people are intentional and thoughtful about how they got there and not just getting there. What context is given to the onlookers? Is there some kind of like you know, a placard that says, this is Soprano Whitney Morrison. She's the inaugural artist in residence of Lyric Opera Chicago. Don't touch her. <laughs> Don't poke her. Don't beat her. <laughs> well, the, the green the greenhouse is um, fully enclosed, and so they wouldn't have easy access to me, so that's great. Um, 
there were some do not touch signs, but I don't know if they actually made it out. I know we was we have some, so in case that's necessary. But there are um, a couple pretty tall stanchions, maybe about two or three feet tall. Um, and there are also some like placards with a museum label. So it feels like a kind of proper e exhibit with, you know, my name and all of the information about the um, the art itself. And there, there are, are some QR codes that link to the Lyric Artist in Residence page. And then there are other people from um, Lyric Unlimited there to answer any questions in person and, you know, give people a little more context because people were very curious. And so they asked a lot of questions and they did a lot of reading and, um, and stuck around. Hmm. And I was doubly surprised that, you know, some of my peers, they're like, oh, I want to see it again. Oh, I'm going to come to another one. And I was so surprised. I didn't really expect people to want to see it again. But because of the incidental nature of it and the fact that it's not scripted, they understand that it will not be the same next time, just by virtue of the fact that it'll be done again. Hmm. I think it'd also be very fascinating for people to see the rehearsal process and how different stage directors work and how different coaches work and how conductors work. <laughs> but, you know, for now, we'll just get to hear you practice. <laughs> well, who knows? It could be the start of a whole new perspective on classical music because classical music really is very cool, especially classical voice. I mean, when you realize that contemporary bodies, just like everybody else walking around, have, we have the capacity to, you know, engage our bodies and minds in a way to create these acoustical wonders of sound and um, of expression. It really is cool. And so it was interesting for people to say, this is so cool. People who are not opera people or whatever to really kind of see what I see, which is it's really fascinating. And so it's nice to kind of give people more access to that part of opera. And is there anything else that you can announce right now? I know that there's some stuff that's in development, especially with your residency, but uh, some other opportunities that people might be able to hear you perform in the near future? Oh, sure. I'll be at the uh, Berkshire Opera Festival in August for uh, my role debut as Mimi and um, La Boheme. And so I'm really excited. I covered Mimi at Lyric while I was in the Young Artist Program. And so I'm excited to revisit the role and um, actually get it on stage. Nice. So Whitney Morrison singing Mimi at the Berkshire Opera Festival and singing uh, the role of uh, Meal's mother and champion at Lyric Opera Chicago and also singing in a greenhouse in various parts of Chicago, <laughs> but no performance time and no promises that you'll actually hear a song. There are performance times yeah. and I am working on all the things. So, you know, Mimi is up. So you hear a lot of Mimi if that's what I get to. Nice. But, you know. I would love to hear yeah. your, your, your Donde Lieta. <laughs> if you need me to come in and just sing "Si" in the middle of your first time. <laughs> you do it. I'm not paying you any mind. I have focus, you know. Um, so, yeah, but there are definitely times and, you know, and so it should be cool. I think people should come see it for themselves and, you know, give me the thumbs up, thumbs down or sideways, you know, it's, it's, it's experimental. And so I'm excited to just kind of get it out into the world. My thanks to Whitney Morrison for taking the time to talk to me about Growing Room and her career to date. I hope that you can check out 
her appearances throughout the Chicagoland area in her greenhouse practice space, or if you're up in the Berkshires to check out her Mimi in Lava Wem. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com if you have them and let us know what you think about the idea of a uh, open practice room for people to gawk at you while you try to sort out your scales. Hello to the OBS team back in Chicago and to everybody tuning into the show this week. George Cedarquist filing a report from Pittsburgh, PA, and the Opera America Conference. Every business has a conference. Of course, your field might have one as well. For us in the opera business, it's the Opera America Conference is probably the highlight of the opera year. Opera America is the national advocacy organization for the form of opera. It's based in New York City, and it holds a conference every year, which travels around the country again this year in Pittsburgh, PA. Lots of speakers, lots of plenary sessions, small conversations, lots of food and drink camaraderie. The theme for the conference this year was the human dimensions of opera, specifically the needs and of artists and arts workers, the patterns and behaviors of audiences, and the subject and the scope of the operas that are produced. And for me, the highlight had to be the very first thing that happened on the very first day, which was the opening session and the keynote speaker, Peter Sellers. Now, Peter Sellers, you might know, is perhaps the most impactful American director on the art form of opera ever. He is a spry 70-year-old, probably, known for his very pronounced haircut, flat top almost, and his Buddhist prayer beads that he wears. Peter Sellers spoke at length in the opening session and really referenced his own faith as a Buddhist, saying that his making of the craft comes from compassion, courage, love, and generosity. He also went on to say that he feels that opera is about truth and that truth is something that is dimensional. It is not a flat screen experience. It wasn't an attack exactly on digital work that had come up in the pandemic, but he definitely was advocating for a return to the opera house, a return to humanity, a return to love, and the way that this art form, like no other, can bring together people from many, many different backgrounds and try and all put us together in the same experience to rather than hide everything that we feel and believe, to expose that through the power of music. I was able to catch up with five different opera professionals during the course of the conference, each with a super quick hot take on the conference. And I started with our dear friend, Frank Luzzi, who is at Opera Philadelphia. Hey, everybody. I'm with Frank Luzzi, Opera Philadelphia here at the Opera America conference. Frank, let's start off with an easy question. What is your favorite sports team? Philadelphia 76ers. They break my heart every year. This conference is all about humanity. What has been like a moment of humanity for you so far? Huh. 
Good question. Um, well, I've been surrounded by a lot of humans. And uh, humans come with lots of flaws and lots of um, uh, fun. And so uh, there's the great thing about this conference is there's always a lot of uh, authenticity about the conversations. Uh, people really trying to uh, lean into one another's experiences and find answers in a, an art form that is perpetually, I think, almost aggressively trying to justify why it's still around. Last question. Can you name five operas by Handel? Probably not. Um, is Orfeo a Handel? The Opera America conference, of course, is full of administrators from the field, but typically composers, librettists, and singers as well. Obviously, there's always a bit of hustle in the hallways to try and get one's new opera performed or to try and get a job somewhere. More than ever, it seemed that the librettists and composers and singers were really out there. The last time I was at the Opera America Conference 2019 in St. Louis, hosted by Opera Theater of St. Louis, it didn't seem to be quite so much full of hustle. I do think that the pandemic has likely made it more important for these creatives to come to the Opera America Conference and to try and lay the foundations for future work. Here's Daniel Grambo from Chautauqua Opera. So Daniel, um, what's your favorite sports team? Uh, Green Bay Packers, all the way. Yikes, know, yikes, yikes, yikes. The um, conference this year is all about humanity. What has been a moment of humanity that you have seen or learned about in the last couple days? Um, outside of us all going to the like mixers and everything and debating how much the, the spinach and artichoke dip actually costs, uh, that was a pretty human moment. Um, I think it was great just hearing Peter Sellers kind of like really like level the playing field with everything that we were going to be discussing throughout the whole conference. Last question. Can you name five operas by Handel? <laughs> uh, no. The beauty of going to the Opera America conference in an odd numbered year, such as this year, 2023, is that you get to see the winning teams of the director designer competition. This is a national competition that invites teams of directors and designers to create a concept for a opera taken from a specific list, and then up to four winning teams are chosen to present their ideas at the conference, which this year included productions of Zalame and Sweeney. Todd. I spoke with the independent stage director who introduced that session of directors and designers, Daniel Ellis. All right, hang, hanging out with Daniel Ellis, stage director and 2021 winner of the director designer competition at Opera America. First things first, Daniel, what is your favorite sports team? Well, it would have to be the Chicago Bears. There we go, baby. That's what I like, that's what I like to hear. Where are you from originally? I'm actually from Arkansas, originally. Ah, go Razorbacks! That's going to make our co-host, Ashley Hardgrave, who's also a Razorbacks fan, super happy. Let's get down to business. This Opera America conference is all about humanity. Where have you seen humanity in the last couple days, or what's been your, your moment of humanity so far in this conference? 
I think for this conference, it was probably listening to Peter Sellers give his opening inspirational speech. I mean, about where opera is today, where we need to be more human to each other and, and, and be part of a bigger experience than just thinking that we're an elite art form. We are an art form for the masses. And um, it was really inspirational to see a man who was so passionately, I mean, literally crying as he was speaking to all of us. Um, just a wonderful way to start this, this opera, uh, conference. Peter Sellers was worth the price of admission alone. Absolutely. Last question is a trivia question. Can you name five operas by Handel? Five operas by Handel. Agrippa, Orlando. <laughs> He's thinking. While he th- Agrippa, and I can't figure out the other ones. Um, while, on. while he thinks, I can remind our listeners that I myself could not name five operas by Handel. You're doing pretty well, Daniel. Um, The sad thing is, is that I was just looking at rep for handle because of, of some other stuff I was doing. Every Opera America conference has a host company this year. It was Pittsburgh Opera. General Director Christopher Hahn gave some opening remarks at the beginning of the conference, and his opera company hosted one of three different productions that were on offer to conference attendees. This was the piece Denise and Katia, which premiered at Opera Philadelphia. The music is by Philip Venables with libretto and stage direction by Ted Huffman. This is a very contemporary opera done on an extremely stark set with a score of four cellos, two singers, each of whom has an earpiece with a click track in their ear. There's lots of projections as well all telling the story of two Russian teenagers in the late 2010s whose video of gun violence went viral on social media. Later that weekend, there was also a production of Verdi's Macbeth at Resonance Works, a smaller opera company in the city of Pittsburgh. They did the Verdi with a reduced orchestra and a reduced chorus, but still managed to pack some serious punch and serious volume. Ned Canty of Opera Memphis was the next person I managed to catch up with. All right, day three of the Opera America Conference, hanging out with Ned Canty, general director and CEO of Opera Memphis. Ned, what is your favorite sports team? The Memphis Grizzlies. How many fans do they have, man? They have all the fans that matter. The only fans that matter. I mean, come on. The only real fans. Being a fan, I, I grew up as a Mets fan with a brother who's a Yankees fan. You know what the easiest thing in the world to like is? What? The Yankees. You know what's hard to like? The Mets. But if you like them, eventually you get, as I did when I was 16, the 86 Mets. And so, you know, I've been in Memphis 12 years. Uh, I actually didn't even know that I liked basketball until I moved to Memphis and started going to games. Basketball is awesome. If you've never been, you should go. We have this team called the Bulls. Uh, this opera conference is all about humanity. 
the conference is all about humanity. What is a moment of humanity that you have seen or learned about this couple of days? I think the thing about huge manatees is that they're blocking a lot of the waterways in Florida, and it's a problem. Last question. Name five operas by Handel. Five operas by Handel. Rinaldo. Ario Dante. That other one with the mezzo. And those two, there are two with pants rolls, if I remember correctly. One of the running jokes of the festival was that Last year, in 2022, there was not nearly enough food on offer between the various sessions. And so this year, I think they went overboard probably. I felt that I was constantly eating some sort of continental hotel breakfast or a boxed lunch as I moved from room to room and session to session. Also, plenty of party time after hours, of course, hitting the bars of Pittsburgh with old colleagues and friends to catch up and talk about the business. <laughs> it's the last day of the conference. I'm with stage director, Crystal Manage, freelance stage director. Crystal, dare I ask who your favorite sports team is? Well, I'm a Pittsburgh native, and my, and my favorite sports team are the Pittsburgh Pirates, of course. <laughs> um, the conference has been about humanity. What is a moment of humanity that you've seen or heard about or witnessed or made you think in these last couple days? I'm really, I was, I'm pleasantly surprised by the amount of discussion around empathy and, and what we do as artists in opera. Um, I wasn't expecting that. I'm not sure why I wasn't expecting it, but because uh, it just, you know, who knows what to expect from these things because it's my first conference. So I'm really inspired and there are a lot of artists here and it seems like it's more than usual. So it's been really exciting to have that experience. Last question, the lightning round. Handel wrote many operas. Can you name five operas by Handel? Of course. Rinaldo, Adio Dante, um, Rodolinda, I've done all the R's, Agrippina, and Alcina. Bang! There it is. <laughs> Thanks, Crystal. I'm not sure if I can still name five Handel operas. A couple other highlights for me was getting to meet Darrell Akon of Opera Philadelphia, a huge force in the fight to have greater equity and equality in this business. And friend of the show, Carrie Ann Otanio. If you thought she was lively on our show, try and meet her in person. Carrie Ann is the real deal and is such an incredible advocate for this art form in the way that she talks about how it can change people's lives. The Opera America Conference is always a blast. You get to see old friends, meet new colleagues, see productions, think and dream and talk about opera for four whole days, after which you definitely need a break. For me, I just wanted to watch some sports, but we'll be back. The Opera America Conference in 2024 is in the City of Angels. Los Angeles. Well, thanks, George. That was some great content that you created for us. Uh, we really, we really love. Hopefully, content. now you can name a uh, five-handle operas, or at least four and a half. <laughs> or we'll even count oratorias if it makes a difference. If that gets you to five. <laughs> Before we go to the two-minute drill, Ashley, what's happening with uh, Nuggets and Lakers? 
Nuggets, first of all, good job, Nuggets and Lakers. Good job, Oliver. Yeah, so this is the uh, this is the Western Conference Finals. Uh, Denver has been on like a Cinderella run. They are so, so, so good this year. Uh, and this is game four. This might be the game where Denver takes out LeBron James and the LA Lakers. Right now, they lead the series through nothing. Tonight will be the end of it if they win. It's currently uh, eight minutes left in the first. Nuggets are trailing the Lakers, but it's only 11 to four. So... Odds are it's going to get a little more exciting as our recording evening goes on. Well, the clay court season is coming to its climax with the French Open right now starting its, um, what do you call that, qualifying round. And the proper French Open with its uh, seeded players will begin next week. And it's not quite clear what Opera Box Score will be doing to commemorate the opening of the French Open proper, maybe giving you a fresh rerun. But uh, that's what I'll be doing for the next uh, two weeks, or I should say three weeks. Um, sadly, um, Carlos Alcaraz, who's my pick to win the whole thing, did not make it to the finals of Rome. Congratulations to Daniil Medvedev. All right. Uh, it's the two-minute drill. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. AGMA and Central City Opera have reached a new five-year collective bargaining deal just days before rehearsals were set to begin for this year's festival. The agreement crucially preserves the pay-or-play provisions that guarantee every artist a contract, protect uh, bargaining unit work during the festival, and maintain paid sick leave, among other provisions. In a follow-up to last in a follow-up to last week's drill, we now know why Anne Majet declined that honorary doctorate from Cleveland Institute of Music. The university has initiated a Title IX inquiry into their conductor, Carlos Calamar, after accusations of, quote, inappropriate behavior of varying degrees were reported. Per federal law, the investigation is confidential, but a number of events since the launch have drawn further scrutiny, including an invitation for students to share their own experiences with the conductor. In a New York Times pictorial essay describing the new to the Met production of Magic Flute, guest conductor Natalie Stutzman raised some brows with comments on an elevated visible on set orchestra. Quote, there's nothing more boring than being an orchestra musician and being in the back of a cave with no idea of what's happening on the stage. Can you imagine spending three or four hours, five for Wagner, at the bottom of a pit and have no idea what's happening above you? Yikes. We have to be careful not to cover up the singers. You have to be vigilant while avoiding being bland. The orchestra players fired back on social media saying they were disheartened by Stutzmann's comments. Quote, our time is spent in the orchestra pit is anything but a mundane experience, and we do not consider it a cave. Though we may not see the grand visual spectacle unfolding above us, we know exactly what is happening on stage. We want to emphasize the passion we feel for our craft and the enormous amount of preparation we undertake in order to have a deep knowledge of that which we cannot see. In short, we are not bored, but rather exhilarated. Uh, shots, as they say, gefired. New opera is coming to La Scala. Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose, a medieval thriller set in a monastery, has been commissioned from Italian composer Francesco Fididei with a premiere set for 2025. The production will star friends of the show Lucas Meacham and Kate Lindsay. Fididei is working on two versions, one in Italian and one in French, the second to premiere in Paris. Mezzo-soprano Ida Rensleuf has been named 
It's the most recent recipient of Sweden's Birgit Nilsson Stipendium, which has been awarded since 1973. The 200,000 crown prize, which is about 19,000 in American dollars, includes a recital as part of the summer's Birgit Nilsson days, my favorite holiday. Rensselöv <laughs> is a native of Helsingborg and currently sings as a member of the ensemble of the Staatsoper Stuttgart. In trade news, UIA talent and ADA artist management have merged and will be representing all current clients as a single entity, UIA Talent Agency. ADA founder Anadar Chuleta will become UIA's strategic advisor and the role of CEO will be served by Aaron Senko, who is the managing director of UIA Talent. The three agency leaders will all be equity partners. Ivan Van Kamtut will become Artistic Director for Lisbon's National Theatre of Sao Carlos this July, overseeing the closure of the Opera House for refurbishment, as well as its reopening to the public in 2026. Van Kamtut previously served as Artistic Director of Staatsoper Unter den Linden and Interim Artistic Director of Grand Teatro del Liceo. On the disabled list, Christina Opalais has withdrawn from her upcoming debut as Carmen at Oper im Steinbruch, saying, I've spent a lot of time with this music in the last months, and I feel the role is not one I want to add to my repertoire at this time. For her. The Royal Opera has announced a cast change for its production of Aida. Angel Blue has withdrawn from the last three performances and will be replaced by Swedish soprano Christina Nielsen, who will perform the title role making her house debut. And on this day, May 22nd, in 1798, it was the first performance of Gaspare Spontini's Il Teseo Riconosciuto in Florence. The legendary Italian soprano Giulia Grisi was born in Milan on, in 1811. She created Giulietta in the Capulets and the Montagues, Adalgisa in Norma, Elvira in I Puritani, Norina in Don Pasquale, and many, many more roles. In 1813, Rossini's L'Italiana in Algeri premiered in Venice, and it was also the birth of a little composer you might have heard of by the name of Richard Wagner. In 1872, the aforementioned birthday boy, Wagner, celebrated his day by laying the cornerstone of the Bayreuth Festspiel. And two years later, in 1874, it was the first performance of Verdi's Requiem, which was conducted by the composer in Milan. In 1925, it was the birth of the American Helton tenor James King in Dodge City, Kansas. And in 1950, it was the first performance of Richard Strauss's posthumous Four Last Songs, which premiered in London by soprano Kirsten Flagstad. And that's your two-minute drill. out a couple birthday boys in one go here with this <laughs> recording of James King performing the monologue from Act 3 of Lohengrin with the Munich Radio Orchestra and Kurt Peter Eichhorn conducting. I 
would not generally call myself the world's greatest Heldon Tenor fan, but James King's tone is always so pure. And like he he's able to include so much he include, he's able to marshal so much power behind it without ever ever losing the beauty. And I think it, he really stands alone, or, or not if not alone, then then apart from many other Heldon Tenors in this kind of repertoire. I agree. I think James King is the man, and uh, I love his Bacchus in Ariadna of Noxus, one of the most thankless Heldon Tenor roles that is a voice buster from the minute you step on stage in the opera proper, and he sings it like a god. Go figure. <laughs> Well, uh, you know so, who else was standing alone this week? Us, as we were trying to find news articles. Boy, howdy, was it a slow news week. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, we have stuff to talk about. Um, we can just briefly say that as Chicago citizens, Chicago residents, it's a little bit, um, I guess, disheartening is might be the good word to use, that we may lose our principal conductor of Grand Park Music Festival. Uh, not that any arts organization uh, can withstand the scrutiny of a PR nightmare like this. Um, but, you know, I feel like Grand Park Music Festival is one of those things that's such a, a wonderful gift to the city and is always just trying to make ends meet for their very important mission. And they do, you know, repertoire that otherwise will not be programmed by major orchestras. And they do it at a very high level. And they're a great job for singers on top of that. And they've introduced Chicago audiences to some great soloists, um, some of them who are young soloists before they get a big break elsewhere. Um, Olivia Bowen comes to mind. She is a yeah. Chicago, Chicago native soprano who is working right now in Germany, but she makes her big uh, American debut uh, singing in the Dvorak Sabbat Mater this summer, for example. Yes. Listeners, so, we're talking, by the way, about Carlos Kelmore. He's yeah, the guy yes. from Brett Park. <laughs> so um, it would suck if the season got spoiled and they have to do some repertoire changes or they have to like get a bunch of, you know, pick up conductors to, uh, you know, pick up the pieces. But uh, that happened actually last year when Carlos Kelmore got sick with COVID and Stephen Altop, who is a yeah. local conductor, got a chance to conduct this major orchestra. Speaking of conductors, I saw the Don Giovanni in HD and it was excellent. And I saw this Don Giovanni um, just after having read about this um, thing that Natalie Stutzman said in that photo essay that pissed off some Met Orchestra musicians. <laughs> they are standing together. They are on a staircase and Yannick has their front, I guess. Yeah, he's in front of them, <laughs> but speaking with them, I suppose. Does, is Yannick part of this statement? He's in the picture that they posted. So at least implicitly, he is part of the statement. Yes, uh, listeners, the, the news article that we're referring to is an Instagram post from the Metropolitan uh, Orchestra artist, but it's literally them on a big staircase surrounding Yannick, who is standing right in the center. And the headline is, what was it? Breaking news, colon, Met Op Orchestra Not Bored? It was that is very... exactly it. And that yeah. was what I read as a highly excerpted uh selection from from their statement this uh evidently really touched a nerve well that would be my bad call uh then because you know here is this uh guest conductor uh who is one of very few women to conduct that orchestra and is a specialist in her repertoire and also a trained singer and she was interviewed by the new york times as part of this 
photo essay about the new production and coming against her so unitedly about her statement doesn't really give her a chance to like add nuance to what she was saying. I mean, we sort of all know what she's saying and she mm -hmm. wants the orchestra to be seen, which I think is a good thing. Uh, and I think for uh, early opera, I think it's actually helpful to have that balance, you know, if you, especially if you use, um, you know, the correct tuning from the period or, or period instruments or this type of thing that I'm really into, you know? It, it's just about the least charitable read of the comments that yeah, you could I mean, possibly have. Well, and I was thinking a little bit more about this because I've been, I've been ruminating on this a bit uh, since I learned about this. And one way that one could read the story uh, is that she is not necessarily giving props and visibility to the orchestra, uh, but a, a less positive read could be that they're just hired shills that don't know dramatically what's going on. And I'm wondering if that's the tack and the feeling that they got from it. And that's why they responded so unitedly and Cecily. I mean, it certainly seems like they are, they're responding to what felt like a personal attack, but yeah, but really what she was critiquing it, the way I read her comments was performance practice that has been inherited from 200 years ago that people act like we shouldn't ever question or look for alternative ways to do things. And that is like a very common theme in these opera houses that covered orchestra pits don't, they're not always necessary and they're not always useful and they're not always helpful. And it is not an attack on the orchestra in any way to try to point that out. Maybe maybe the phrasing could have been a little bit more artful, but I really don't think that splitting hairs over that statement is, is needed. And I mean, she was, it's not like she went to the New York Times and said, I got a you know, bone to pick with the way they do things around here. Let me give you this statement, you know? It was part of whatever publicity for this show that she's conducting which by all accounts is being critically praised. It's a really, you know, well-received production with a great cast. Why do they got to besmirch her and make her seem like an enemy? I'm just, that's really disappointing. Anyway, uh, I still love her. <laughs> you're not canceled, Natalie, if you're listening. No. Yes, please be our guest on uh, listening to singers. I mean, on uh, opera box score. Too many shows, or, Oliver. <laughs> or both, or both. That seems perfectly fine. Uh, so what's going on in Chicago that we didn't talk about yet, Ashley? Well, uh, Oliver, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, so <laughs> so <there's>... organically. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there are, you know, we are, none of us are just the hosts of the show, as great as this job is. Uh, and one of the other artistic endeavors that I have uh, is I, ha I am an alum of a training program called OperaWorks, uh, which a lot of singers are familiar with. Not everybody is, though. Uh, OperaWorks is very much, the tagline is kind of like they make opera singers look like normal people. Uh, it's a very eurythmic mind and body training. And while you're starting to see that, you know, in some more modern singer training programs, OperaWorks has been doing it for 35 years. Uh, and so it really takes a eurythmic approach. It was created by uh, Ann Baltz, who is a pretty noted uh, singing coach and pianist. And when she was learning the ropes and when she was working for opera company, she noticed this pattern of sort of play, stop, correction, play again, stop, 
correction. And th there wasn't a lot of encouragement there for the singers. And they were being asked to tell the stories with their throats and their vocal mechanisms, but they weren't being asked to tell the story with their bodies. And so what she did was develop a comprehensive trademarked training program uh, that has actually been written about in psychological journals, uh, empirical evidence that shows that the training at Opera Works actually improves the mental and behavioral health and the confidence of its uh, of its students and its singers. And so Ann Baltz has been working and doing this program on the West Coast, but seeing trainers from all over the world, or sorry, training singers from all over the world for 35 years. But she has decided to take a step back from that. And she has named some of the alumni of this program as sort of the artistic leadership of it. Uh, myself and another gentleman, Thomas Alayan, we are the artistic executives of the new version of OperaWorks, what we're calling OperaWorks 2.0. And we are kicking it off this summer with an intensive singer workshop here in the great city of Chicago. It's going to be in just a few weeks, June the 16th through the 18th. Uh, we're going to be bringing in some of the faculty from, from the original opera works from places like Los Angeles Opera, California State University at Northridge. Uh, we're also going to be bringing in some Research One professors that are going to be teaching things like movement for singers. We have a clinical psychologist who's coming in to do a workshop on singing and the brain and how those things need to be working together to make an effective storyteller. Uh, and it's a it's a fully volunteer project for me. It's been an absolute labor of love. Uh, I say 15 years on from being in the program that that training made me the performer that I am. And if you've ever had a chance to see me sing, you know, I, I'm pretty visual and I tell stories pretty, pretty well with my, um, with not just my voice, but my body. She's not a dancer, but she moves well and she can tell stories. Uh, and so at any rate, I just wanted to let folks know that this was happening and it was happening here in Chicago. And we still have a handful of spots available for people who might be interested in joining our singing intensive this coming June. So if you are interested, you can go to operaworks.org opera and then the word works and org and there's a whole list right there you can get directly into the program it's really quick uh the application is is pretty straightforward if you've got any questions you can always dm those opera box score people and uh those messages will get to me and it's not a conflict of interest they'll just let me know but at any rate uh i'm i'm really proud of the work this program does i'm really proud to be an alum of the program and i am delighted to take on the legacy of the wonderful ann balt so if you're curious at all operaworks.org Come see me. Time for good call, bad call. Matt, you got. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and piggyback on uh, Ashley's self-promotion tour to say that if you're in the mood for eight voice tenor bass chamber choirs, uh, you can feel free to check out my group Constellation Men's Ensemble and our new album Man Up, Man Down, which came out uh, last week. It features a Mostly brand new works from all living composers, such as David Lang. That's the one that's not new, but is great. Rob Maggio and Jeffrey DeRusse. Uh, and it's available wherever streams are streaming or from our label, uh, Sono Luminous Records. I know George doesn't like to do his own self-promotion on the show, but he's not here and we have no such compunctions. Uh, Ashley. Uh, you know, I found this this article uh, on The Guardian. It's written by Imogen Tilden. It's called 10 Ways to Save Classical Music. Now, it's written with the UK audience in mind, but I do feel like there are some things that we've discussed on this program and that we could be discussing a little bit further over here stateside. So I have a family assignment for all of us and all of our listeners out there. Look up on The Guardian. We'll throw it on our website too. 10 Ways to Save Classical Music. Let's all read it and discuss it as a family, shall we? 
Well, I would tell people that you can find the link to that article on our website, but instead I'm going to say as my good call that we are developing a new website with a very dear friend and we're very grateful to him or her or them. Uh, so for the moment, don't go to operaboxscore.com <laughs> just for a moment. Uh, and we'll let you know when that new site will be available. Uh, meanwhile, uh, next week is Memorial Day, the day we will record. So you'll hear from us with fresh content in a few weeks. But in the meantime, you can find me at the Boston Early Music Festival, which starts on June 4th. Really look for me. I will be there all over the place. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. And find links to the stuff we've talked about another time. And that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. I guess you have to go to the website if you want to give us money. So yeah, give us money if you want. Uh, we'll make it easier <laughs> in the future. Uh, give back to the OBS on the donate page at operaboxscore.com if you feel like checking the old site out so that you could really celebrate the new site. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. The creative consultant and editor this week is me. Uh, for our co-hosts, George Cedarquist, Matt Cummings, and Ashley Hardgrave, and our guest, Whitney Morrison, I'm Oliver Camacho, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you celebrate Birgit Nilsson Days. Next week, look for the best of OBS in your podcast feed when we revisit our interview with Ryan Speedo-Green and take a deep dive into Barber's Knoxville summer of 1915. We promise you won't be bored, but rather exhilarated. Join us.